0: The title of today's sermon is, Who is the Greatest? And it's taken from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 14. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to be our teacher this morning? Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. We pray, Lord, that it would give us comfort this day, that it would give us guidance, that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to speak to us lord and our inner man that we might be better equipped better prepared to serve you in the places of need that we find ourselves on this day we pray in christ's name amen many of us can remember muhammad ali the late great heavyweight champion of the world he's now gone but during his boxing heyday ali seemed to be bigger than life In his early days, he was famous for his braggadocio. Typically, he'd pound an opponent into submission and then stand over his fallen prey, yelling out, I am the greatest! I'm the greatest. But there's an anecdote from his life that I like much better. It seems the champ was flying to participate in a fight And just before takeoff, the stewardess came by and requested that he fasten a seatbelt. Ali replied to her, Superman don't need no seatbelt. The quick-witted stewardess replied, Superman don't need no airplane, (laughs) neither. So the greatest fashioned his seatbelt. Truth is, no believer walking in the spirit would ever think of imitating Muhammad Ali's arrogance. We view the Christian life through the lens of the fruit of the Spirit, that is love, joy, peace, gentleness, humility, and so on. These character traits were on display fully in the life of our Lord Jesus for all to see. Now, as we make our way through the gospel narratives, we are surprised by the disciples jockeying for position. On more than one occasion, we are privy to their arguing over who will be the greatest in the kingdom. In fact, on one occasion, the mother of the sons of thunder, James and John, came to Jesus to lobby that her boys be seated on his left and right in his coming kingdom. This, of course, caused the other disciples to become indignant. What right did James and John have to be in the top spots in the kingdom. What about them? Well, Jesus, being the master teacher, used that occasion to teach them a lesson about servanthood. In spite of these oft-repeated lessons, they continued to debate who would hold on to the reins of power in that coming kingdom. In our morning's text, in Matthew chapter 18, the twelve have gathered once again, despite what the film showed, in Capernaum at the home of Peter. And in Mark 9, we see that as so. The event occurs in the house that Peter owned in the city of Capernaum. And this takes place, of course, on the heels of the event that we saw in the past couple of weeks, the Mount of Transfiguration. During that visit to the Mount of Transfiguration, old wounds seem to have been opened up about who would hold the top spot amongst the leadership among the 12 especially in relationship to Peter. Is this thing making noise again? Is that better? Okay. You'll remember, it's only been a very short time since the Lord Jesus invited Peter to go out onto the water after the storm had overtaken the boat and they had become afraid. There was Peter, now James and John along with him, invited to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration and to view Elijah, Elijah, um, Moses, and the father, of course, speaking from out of a cloud. Then last week we saw uh, Jesus instruct Peter to go fishing to find a coin in the mouth of a fish to pay their temple tax. So the others had become somewhat jealous They thought Jesus might be playing favorites. Certainly they felt neglected by the Lord. So they're here all gathered now at Peter's house in Matthew 18, verse 1. If you'd like to follow along with me, if you don't have a text with you, you can find this on page 977 of our Pew Bible. And in verse 1, the disciples questioned Jesus about this as we read. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You'll recall the entourage had just walked 25 miles from Caesarea Philippi, the grotto of Pan, back to the region of the Galilee and being exhausted. I'm tired, as I'm sure you would be. They went to... Peter's house for rest. Matthew states that it was at that time that this important question arose. Who will be the greatest? Notice that Matthew tells us the disciples came to Jesus with this divisive question. Now, the Lord is not out ministering to the lost of Israel. He's not dealing with the religious elites nor the Gentiles in the Decapolis. No, this question comes to the Lord Jesus from his own disciples who believe him to be the Messiah King of Israel. These men were not unbelievers, but just the opposite. So then, how do we understand this text? We don't understand it evangelistically as most will preach it? Or should we understand it in a discipleship mode? Most, I believe, misinterpret This text completely. Why? Because this is the disciples coming to Jesus who are already faithful in Christ. They believe in him. They're anticipating his coming kingdom. That's why they're asking this question. So naturally, as Jesus' closest advisors, they expect to hold positions of power in that coming kingdom. Let me be clear that Jesus is addressing believers and not unbelievers. They are questioning him about his coming kingdom and not about the church. If you do not understand this, you will misinterpret this this text completely. The church is yet future. It has not been inaugurated. His death and resurrection have not taken place. So the truth is the twelve know little about any coming ecclesia, congregation, or as we call it today, the church. We can make this text say something that Matthew never intended it to say, if we'd like. If we read the epistles back into the Gospels. This is a question about God's program for Israel. About the Jewish Messiah coming to reign for a thousand years, and not about the church age. Let me be crystal clear, this is not about kingdom entrance, but how to be great in God's kingdom. Really, the question is direct and on point. Jesus, who will be greatest during your thousand-year reign? This, of course, anticipates that he will speak to them about their coming role. So all 24 eyes of these 12 disciples are focused upon Jesus. I imagine their palms were sweating a bit as they awaited his answer. Nothing could be more important to them as to what their future role would be. Now you'll recall that this, again, this question surfaces On the heels of chapter 16, if you will, in which Jesus taught on rewards in his coming kingdom. He said there, you'll recall this, the Son of Man will come in his glory and the glory of the Father with all of his angels and will repay, there it is, will repay, recompense, reward every man according to his deeds. And he then added for effect... Truly I say to you, there are some standing right here who will not die until they have seen me, where? In my kingdom. Well, Peter and James and John in chapter 17 had the privilege of seeing Jesus transformed. They had a preview of his coming kingdom. When Jesus was standing there all white and in his glory with Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop. We wonder why Jesus would instruct the three not to say anything about this event, event, but we have a clear answer. Because if they did, the other nine would get indignant and jealous. So they finally understood that what all they had believed about his coming kingdom was wrong. They they'd all been indoctrinated into false teaching about the coming kingdom by the religious elites of Israel. They taught that God would bring in a golden era of peace and prosperity, and that The Messiah would reign over the land just as David and Solomon had done. So the twelve had these visions dancing in their heads of being established into a powerful kingdom in which they would be part of the the ruling elite. They now understood that there were questions about that and that they were probably wrong as to their expectations. That's what prompted this question I'm sure they wanted to encourage Jesus for that uh, time to come, for his rule to overwhelm Israel, for him to uh, somehow, however the Messiah could do it, to eliminate the the Roman threat and for him to rule. And as they pondered those wonderful images in their head, they coveted these positions of prominence and power. This was a question then for the disciples of self promotion of thinking of themselves and a future as they saw it, even though they now had these questions, these doubts in their minds. They were so invested in this fantasy, as I said, they would even drag their own mother into asking him for positions of power. So we see these new little glimpses into the coming kingdom by Jesus, and we see their misconceptions about what they thought it would be based on the false teaching of the religious elites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes about the coming kingdom. They assumed that it would be much like all the other kingdoms of the earth, that there would be rank, that there would be power, there would be status. How could they have fallen for this kind of thinking? How could they get it so wrong? What was the cause of their misconception well, at the base, the bottom line of it, it was their own sin. The root of it was their own pride. All of us tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We tend to believe that the Lord just somehow couldn't get along without us. I'm sure the 12 disciples had the same issues that you and I do. Pride is what caused Satan to fall from heaven. Pride is what called, caused Adam to sin in the garden. Pride is what caused these men to to ask such a silly question. Pride is the source of all of our conflicts and divisions. Let me remind you once again that this text is about greatness in the kingdom and not in the church. This is not about entrance into eternal life. This is about how and where one can serve the Lord in his coming kingdom. The twelve wrongly anticipated that it would be coming now, when it would not be now, but would be later. They were envisioning the grandeur and the reward of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus is about to turn that thinking upside down and show them that reigning with him, that serving him is conditional. What sort of people is Jesus looking for to reign in his coming kingdom? That's really what we're focusing on today. The answer shocks the 12 disciples. And in verse 2, he gives them the answer through a living object lesson. In verse 2, we read that he called a child. Some believe that this was Peter's child. And he stood them, or set the child, him before them. Don't you love it? Jesus was the master teacher. He always used object lessons. Remember when he was at the grotto of Pan? He used the mountain as an example. The, the grotto with the, the cutouts for the, for the false gods, he used them as an example. The waters flowing, he used as an example. The Lord loves to use things around him in nature and in life. And he does so here. He uses a young boy as an object lesson. They're sitting there waiting breathlessly to find out who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And he pulls this kid out from the household and stands him in front of him. His answer was a child. They were secretly hoping that Jesus would point to them and say, Peter, you're going to be number one. You're gonna be the Prime Minister. And John, you're gonna sit on my right, and James, you're gonna sit on my left, just as mommy asked. But the Lord bypasses each one of the twelve to lay his hands on this little boy, a child. He was using this child as prima facie evidence of what is true greatness. The Greek word, as you can see behind me, is translated a child as is Padeon, which is translated a child can refer to either a boy or a girl, but not an infant. The Lord's answer then on greatness is an illustration of a small child. A little child had no rights in Israel. A little child had no status in the ancient world. Children were viewed as property and more of a problem than anything else. Children were not important in these cultures and were subject to all authority. Not like today, huh? What do we've got? A child trying to teach us about what the Constitution says and telling us that we should not have our rights according to the Constitution. A child, a high school boy, that's where we've come today in our culture. In this culture, the desires and the opinions of children were not sought nor considered. A child was to be looked after, not looked up to. Jesus implies that the one who is great here is like a child who, is, who does not have an obsession with power, influence, and ambition. A child is the appropriate object lesson because a child speaks of powerlessness. This child shows the absurdity of their question. They should have been concerned about serving rather than ruling. Jesus is always radically different than other teachers. He was radically different from the cultural expectations of his days and certainly the teaching of the religious elites of Judaism. It's a complete reversal of the human value system that they had been indoctrinated into and the one that you and I have been indoctrinated into. Based upon this illustration of a child, greatness is not how we view it today, nor how they viewed it in their day. So Jesus gives them this warning of having a different Attitude towards greatness in his kingdom. Greatness involves humility. True humility involves a change in thinking, a change in attitude. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, Jesus says, then you must change your attitude, change your mind in verse 3. Truly I say to you, you must be converted. Have a change of attitude, have a change of thinking, have a change of mind. You must be converted or you will not enter the kingdom of God. Now again, Jesus is speaking to who? His disciples who are believers in him. So he's not talking about kingdom entrance. The topics is kingdom greatness, not kingdom entrance. So we must understand this in this context. Jesus admonishes them to be converted to a little child, one who has no rights, no status, one who is completely humble. This is a read a radical reorientation of their thinking. They must reject the cultural norms of the day if they are to seek greatness in the kingdom of God. The Greek word that's translated here is converted is epistetropho, which you can see behind me on the screen. It's an aorist passive subjunction which means nothing to you but in the Greek language it implies a decisive act. The subjunctive mood shows that it requires choice. So you make a choice at one time. The disciple of Jesus Christ must choose servant status. The high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ is not to rule, it's to serve. Jesus articulated this clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. God bless you. So the first condition of obtaining greatness in the kingdom of God is to be humble, to be converted, to have a change of thinking. You see, by nature, we want to be served rather than to serve. Now, many wrongly understand this Greek word in the... Lordship Salvationist Camp, teaching that this is one of the conditions for salvation that cannot be. Because Jesus is already talking, has been talking to the disciples, not to the lost man. For one to be saved, one does not need to turn their life over to Jesus. One does not need to change radically in your lifestyle. One must Trust, believe, and receive that the Lord Jesus Christ is, our, is the only hope of salvation. Conversion of life, change of walk, is not a condition for salvation or justification. One receives a free gift in order to be saved. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done. But it's according to the mercy of God that he saves us. This, this, this speaks of the deeper life that Christ offers to his disciples. That is a life which is holy and set apart unto him for service. As I've stated ad nauseum and I will state it again. Salvation is a free gift but if the abundant life is lots of work of selfless service to the Lord. The child's status in ancient time illustrates this vividly. A child was to be seen and not hurt. The child was to be meek, innocent, and trustful. The inward reality of the believer then and today is to abandon all thoughts of personal greatness in order to become a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is not in any way implying that the Twelve were unbelievers. Eleven had expressed faith in him as the Messiah, save Judas, the twelfth. But this belief system is under the old paradigm, and if you don't understand that, then you will never understand the Gospels fully. They had not yet received salvation as you and I have. It was not a past act They did not have the Holy Spirit in them, the indwelling power to live the abundant life. They were living under the old paradigm of Judaism. That is, they had to believe in the coming Messiah. They believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of that, that he was the coming King, the Messiah whom God had sent. In that sense, they believed and were saved. But as I said, it was not under the new paradigm. Testament understanding of salvation but under the Old Testament. They were obsessed with the Old Testament con- idea of what the Messiah would do. That he would come and rule and reign over Israel. That's what prompted this question. They were looking for an earthly kingdom not a heavenly kingdom. This question about greatness didn't necessarily mean that one of them had it priority over the other, uh, in their even in their own minds, but that they, that they should all have prominence in the kingdom. So they're asking Jesus what role they will play in his coming kingdom as prominent leaders in it. Jesus answers them by saying, you're asking the wrong question. The wrong question that many people ask today. They should have been asking the question, how can I better serve you, Lord Rather than, how can I best serve myself? Because that's really what's behind their question. So Jesus brings this child into their presence as a graphic illustration of what true humility, trust, and obedience is. And in verse 4, Jesus gives them another of the required traits for greatness in the kingdom. Greatness involves a change of thinking in verse 4. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he... Is the greatest in the kingdom. I don't know too many believers, especially type A pastors, who are willing to humble themselves. Are you willing to humble yourselves? I don't meet a lot of humble Christians, to be honest with you. It's not a trait that seems to be something that we seek after. That's one of the biblical paradoxes, is it not? One must go down before he can go up. To be exalted, one must be lowered. Only humility can make one truly great in God's eyes. But that's not our standards or values in this world, but it is Jesus' standards and values. To be great, one must become less. You see, kingdom values are opposite, completely opposite of worldly values. That means that our minds must be transformed, reversed, converted, changed to think according to the paradigm that Jesus Christ and his disciples will lay down in the epistles. You know the passages of of Scripture have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. A change of mind must take place. The kingdom is entered, though, by faith. In Christ, greatness is entered into by humility. Instead of seeking greatness in the kingdom, the disciple is to seek service of others. Serving others is what Jesus is pointing to. And in verse 5, he says, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. There it is. We are to receive a child as we receive Jesus, because we are receiving that child in Jesus' name. We are to accept, we are to welcome, we are to love others. Not because they're nice people, not because they are lovable necessarily, but because Christ is formed in them. We do it in Jesus' name. Receive others like this child in my name. That suggests that we do this act of service for the Lord humbly because it is for his sake, as though we were receiving him. There's a lot of people I'd rather not welcome. There's a lot of people I'd rather not receive. I know that's true with you, right? But if we are to humble ourselves and be like our Lord Jesus, we are to accept all people and love them as Christ Christ. Would love them. The child in verse 5 is now changed, the metaphor here, to the little ones in verse 6. The association of the child and the little ones is made clear, however, to us by the phrase, Who believes in me? Listen to verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a huge, heavy millstone hung around his neck and then be thrown into the depths of sea. To see and round. Holy cow! What a picture! Can you get the imagery here? Greatness involves not tripping up other people. How many Christians I know love to fall, other cause other people to fall. They don't believe that in their heart and mind, but that's what they're doing. You see, we don't really come to church to serve others. We come to be with our community of friends. We want to be noticed. We, we don't want to serve others. We want others to serve us. Am I stepping on too many toes here? I'm telling you the truth. We're to be changed from a child to one of these little ones. We're to be have a, We're to go through a change of status rather than age, is what Jesus is pointing out here. What Jesus is saying is we're to move from being a child to a maturing believer. From a child to a little one. And if we cause any of these to stumble and to fall, woe unto them. Listen to me now very clearly. You will never hear this from other pastors. I'm telling you the absolute gospel truth. The worst sin that you can commit as a believer, listen now, are you listening? The worst sin that you can commit as a believer is to break the fellowship of the church, to break the unity of the body of Christ. That's the absolute worst sin you can do. Not murder, not adultery, It's to break the fellowship of the believers in the church. Disunity is a horrible sin against the body of Christ. Listen to what the disciples, who in the future say about this. Peter wrote in his epistle, to sum up, to sum up, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted and humble in spirit. That does not define the majority of believers I've met in my life. Does that define you? That really is the point of a sermon. This sermon. This day. And this text. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, then be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted and humble spirit. Don't come into church and talk about you. Or how bad somebody is and gossip about so-and-so. You're breaking the unity of the body of Christ and you are sinning against the Lord because you are not being harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind hearted, and humble in spirit. You're going to be glad I'm gone next week, aren't you? (laughs) Paul urged this same thing to believers, saying, to make my joy complete, be of the same mind. I go to Bible studies and all I get is constant arguing by people. Paul says, be of the same mind, mind, maintaining the same spirit, united in the same spirit, intended on one person. Rejoice, be complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. Beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You want to know why the church is powerless today? It's because people are divided. They divide over the nonsense, silliness. He continues, now I exhort you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Do I not tell you the truth? The biggest sin that you can commit against God as a believer in Jesus Christ is to destroy the unity of the fellowship of the church. Opposite of welcoming a believer is causing that believer to stumble. That's exactly what Jesus says. The Greek verb used here is scandalon. You don't need to be an English scholar or a Greek scholar to know where that one leads to, do you? Scandal. To cause someone to stumble is to cause a scandal, literally. To offend, to trap, to cause one to stumble or fall. It is a verb used 13 times in the book of Matthew. To sin against God, and to sin against others, and to sin against yourself. If, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, an innocent one to fall into trouble, to corrupt their mind, then you've sinned against God, and God hates that. We can trip others up by simple things. We can cause them to stumble by being gossipy, by being catty, by being nasty. Anything that gets in the way of building others up becomes a scandal. This can include the cold shoulder, a nasty phone call, an unkind word, or the lack of praying for others. Sometimes we pass along scandalons and we call it a prayer request. These types of communication between people can be stumbling blocks for others. And stumbling blocks are very serious and should be taken that way because they are a test of your own spiritual health. That might mean mean we need to take drastic remedial measures to deal with ourselves or others who are stumbling blocks. What is at stake here is the little ones who believe in Jesus. All believers are liable to stumble, but especially those who are young and immature. And the Lord takes this very serious because he uses great hyperbole. Now, if you take this text and you read it literally without understanding that he's using the figure of the speech here, you should go home and get out a hacksaw or one of those kitchen scoopers Let's start with the eyes first. Gouge out your eye and then get the hacksaw and cut off a hand. I don't know how you're going to cut off the second one, but you could do a foot. That's not what the Lord's saying. He's using, well, when I went to Chicago Public Schools, it was hyperbole, but you know it better as hyperbole. (laughs) Last week, Sue and I went to see a film, Quiddick, about the death of Mary Jo Kopechny. If you're over 45, you remember this well. And Ted Kennedy's involvement? Drowning in water is horrific. Can you imagine being tossed into the deep with a heavy stone around your neck and you know you're going to die in the depths of the sea? What Jesus is doing is drawing a picture of them, of being tossed overboard into the depths of the Mediterranean or perhaps the Sea of Galilee. Galilee. Then he changes metaphors here. talks about hacking off of hands or gouging out of eyes. And he would then talk later on, using another metaphor, about the sheep, one wandering away. As you know, Jews were shepherds, most of them. Early on in their lives, all of them were nomadic shepherds that wandered from one grassy area to another. Jesus uses this hyperbole, these examples, to make a point. He's making a point. He's not saying literally go out and do these things. He's talking about the severity of judgment for the one who makes a young believer to stumble in their walk with him. He's saying it would be better to face the judgment in this life than to face the judgment that's coming in the next life. So the Lord is, is juxtaposing here for us temporal judgment alongside of that of eternal judgment. I'm setting up, these texts, this text, so that you can understand it or get a better idea of what it means. He gives an example of temporal judgment. We know some of these off the top of our head. Ananias and Sapphira were believers, right? Did they go to hell for their lying to the Holy Spirit? No, they were temporally judged. They lost their life. Their judgment began in this life when they were killed, when their lives were taken. But there was also eternal judgment and that they would lose rewards in the life to come. Jesus says that his disciples, if they truly want to be great in his kingdom, must be humbled and not concerned with positions of power and authority. They are to be concerned with serving and not causing others to stumble. Look with me at verse 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block <coughs> excuse me, comes. The first warning here for the believer, the remedial measure that needs to be dealt with, if you will, is that uh, there is obvious temporal judgment that is available for God to use to cause your change of mind and thinking. Of course, I've given you the illustration of death of Ananias and Sapphira. We also saw another temporal judgment. You'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, remember the people who were making a mockery out of the Lord's table? They were getting drunk on the wine at the Lord's table, remember? And some fell asleep. They died. The Lord took their lives. Whoa! is pronounced by the Lord, judgment is coming upon the whole world system. So we have here the idea not only of temporal judgment, but of eternal judgment. The temporal judgment, though, is illustrated in verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet to be cast into eternal fire. The seriousness of this warning is illustrated by the word woe, but this is hyperbole. This is what you should do to avoid temporal judgment in this life. A better choice is temporal judgment, though, over eternal judgment. So to avoid the judgment of God... One should rid himself of worldly influence because it will cause you to stumble and fall. Notice that this verse 8 begins with the conditional word if, right? We're all attuned to those now. Whenever you see an if in the New Testament, you should be wondering, is that a first class, second class, or third class conditional clause? This begins a first class conditional clause which assumes the author's perspective to be true. The idea of cutting off a hand or your foot is to avoid sin. That's shocking. Though it is hypothetical, hyperbole, it's showing and stressing the seriousness of sin. Jesus doesn't intend any of you disciples to actually do this, okay? It's a figure of speech. He's exaggerating to show us the seriousness of breaking the unity of the faith. The greater... The greatness, I should say, of the hyperbolic suggestion makes the point even further. It's shocking to think about this, right? This is something no one would actually ever do. The same comparison, however, is used by Matthew on several occasions. So we see that he uses this point, especially back in the Sermon on the Mount, to, to underscore the seriousness of sinning against the body of Christ. Again, God is concerned with protecting his little ones, the ones who are immature and growing in their faith. What could be worse than drowning in the sea, being totally unable to save yourself? What could be worse than walking through life blind? What could be worse than not having feet and hands? Nothing, right? Pretty bad, right? Well, Jesus says you're better off that way than spending an eternity... In hell, in Sheol, in the fires of judgment. Look with me at verse 9. What do we begin with? If, right? If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you, it is better for you to enter eternal life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast in the fiery hell. Much has been made of this. Again, Jesus is not saying to poke out your eyes because you'll go to hell if you don't. He's using hyperbole to make the point. I think I've underscored that enough. Jesus Christ loves the whole world. Jesus loves every sinner, doesn't he? This is completely complete exaggeration. I want you to notice, though, that there's a difference at the end of verses 8 and 9. The first warning of judgment is of hellfire, but the second judgment. In Hebrew, the term is Gehenna. Most English texts do not capture the importance of that term, the Hebrew Gehenna. It's a compound word, and it speaks of a very specific place. Two words brought together. The first is ge, or valley, and it's combined with henna, or hinnom. It's the valley of Gehenna, which is just outside of the temple site in Jerusalem. In fact, it's opposite. In 2 Kings chapter 23, we read of the Phoenicians who sacrificed to the fire god Moloch in the Valley of Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnom, just outside of the Temple Place in Jerusalem. It says in chapter 23 of 2 Kings, in the Valley of the Sons, in the Valley of the Son of Hinnom that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire of Molech in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, he burned his sons in fire according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to this anger. They have built the high places in the valley of the sons of Hinnom to burn the sons and their daughters in fire, which I did not command. Here is the awful practice of the worship of Moloch and child sacrifice. Once David took the city of Jerusalem, they turned that place in which children were sacrificed to the god Moloch into the garbage dump. It literally became the place where people burned their refuse. Metaphorically, it was used to describe Sheol, Gehenna or hell. Let me be clear. Jesus is not suggesting that anyone was to maim their bodies. He's saying that no one need do this in order to be saved. He's saying that this is how serious sin is. And that your physical bodies will... Maiming your physical bodies will never change your spiritual condition. Cutting off your hand cannot... Change your heart and mind. So what he's talking about is external, uh, eternal judgment, I should say, being compared to temporal judgment. So it's better to judge yourself in this life rightly, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, than remaining and waiting until the, temp- the eternal judgment. Oh boy, I'm getting mixed up here. Till the eternal judgment of the time to come. So take whatever drastic measure it is that you need to take to stop sinning, stop sinning against the body of Christ and making it right, otherwise you will face judgment in the time to come, is what Jesus is saying. Notice in verse 10, this problem is one of the inner man, not the outer man. It's not about your hands, your feet, and your eyes. See that you do not despise any of these little ones, for I say to you, the that their angels in heaven eventually see the face of my Father, continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, again, this is contextually driven. Jesus and his disciples lived in the Judaistic culture. All of them had been taught by the uh, religious elites. There is no such thing as a guardian angel. This and one other text in the Bible seem to allude to it. Jesus is recognizing that his Jewish followers believed in the concept of a guardian angel. They typically believed that each Jewish person had one. However, Jesus is not saying that guardian angels are real, only that Jews falsely believed in them. The idea is that if you harm or hurt a believer, you'd better watch out for their guardian angel is going to come and get you. That's what Jesus is saying here. So greatness involves not only humility, but the second Thing that greatness involves is found here is not harboring ill feelings towards others, despising others. The disciple is not to be like the lost person who naturally does this. Paul will later warn believers this: Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, let all bitterness, let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clandor, and slander be put away from you. With all malice, let me ask you, are you dividing the body of Christ? Are you despising others? Are you holding others with bitterness, contempt, wrath, slander, anger? If you do that against any brother or sister in Christ and the body, you are doing that terrible sin of causing disunity Now in verse 11, we find a verse that some think is not biblical. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Most scholars who do textual research, textual studies, believe that this verse was inserted by a well-meaning copyist from the book of Luke into this place. I'll let you decide that or not. Because the statement is true. But does it fit the context? That's the question. And most scholars, including myself, believe it was a copyist error because it does not appear in the best Greek texts at all. Now, Jesus moves on to another illustration here of the importance of treating people correctly and of not causing little ones to stumble. And that's the parable of the lost sheep. You've probably heard it used evangelistically, but that does not fit the context in which Jesus speak, is speaking. He is the good shepherd, and he is the shepherd over the flock. Who's the flock? Those who believe in him, right? And there's a hundred sheep in his flock, so there's a hundred believers, right? Okay the Lord is not insinuating in this text that the 99 who are faithful are unimportant. He's not saying that at all. He's making a different point, okay? He's not saying that the one who goes off is more important than the 99. He's focusing on, on how each sheep is valuable to him. I love it when he begins verse 12, though. This is the second time he's done it in the last three chapters. He turns to the disciples, and I believe he turns to Peter. doesn't say that, but I believe it. He says, what do you think? (laughs) Now, if Peter had any common sense, what would he do? Shut up. Yeah, exactly. You tell me, Lord, what I'm supposed to think is what he probably should have said. But, right, I'm sure Peter said something, but it's not recorded here by Matthew Almost without skipping a beat, Jesus really doesn't give him a chance to offer any kind of comments. He goes right into this parable of the lost sheep, and he says, If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go search for the one that is straying? Again, this is the context, I believe, of believers, not of lost people. Okay. Obviously, the answer to this is from the context of resounding... Yes, Jesus goes and looks for him. God looks for the sheep that's gone wandering. Do you know any believers who have gone astray? <laughs> that's funny, isn't it? We all have family members who professed Christ and have gone astray, don't we? Well, maybe not all of us. Most of us, right? Does the Lord look for the straying believer? The answer to that is an unequivocal yes. He's given us. 13 verses in great detail of how the Father protects and loves His children. And now He tells us that He goes after them and searches for them if they go astray. Notice He begins with that word again. What is it? If... That's a conditional word, but this time it's not like the other two. We know from the grammar, the construction of it, that this is a conditional clause of the third class. It speaks of a probable or likely future action. In other words, some of the sheep are going to go astray. And if a sheep does go astray, the Lord will seek them out. This going astray or wandering away by one of the faithful describes people, in my belief, of those who walk away from their faith in Christ. You ever had one of those in your family or your sphere of influence? They wander off. They're at church faithfully for a while and then all of a sudden you don't start seeing them. They stop not showing up. They fall into some kind of habitual sin. Such believers are of are not less valuable to the Lord than those who remain faithful. All sheep are of equal value to our Lord. Christ died for the hundred sheep, not just the 99. And he will actively pursue all of those who go astray. But since sheep are dumb, sheep are helpless, sheep are really weak, and they're unable to defend themselves against predators some will go wandering away and get devoured Believers or believers you and me and others are like all human beings we are prone to wander this underscores this underscores this underscores the importance of God's grace this is why I'm a grace believer. And not a lordship salvationist. Anybody who wanders away has never been saved in the first place. They're just lost. They were lost from day one. They never really trusted in Christ, they were just pretending. But God chases them down, He will convict their hearts of their need to return to Himself. Grace is the unmerited favor and mercy of God, not just for salvation, but we live our Christian lives by his unmerited favor and mercy. Listen now, the Lord is not looking to squash you like a bug when you sin. He's looking for you to confess your sin and to return to him and walk faithfully with him. And he rejoices... When you do so, he and the kingdom of God rejoice. The heavens are filled with rejoicing by the angels when you do return to him. Verse 13, if it turns out he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices. First class conditional clause or the if, and he rejoices over it more than the other 99 who have not gone astray. Some believers will stray from the path. This will cause great grief to the Lord but he will rejoice if they return. Now, we get the conclusion in verse 14. Look at me there. Jesus affirms all of this, saying, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that any one of the little ones perish. It's not God's will that you wander off. It's not God's will that you get into sin. So you better be careful when you go to the high school prom Right, Annie? God's will is that you never cause others to stumble and fall into sin. Because judgment is coming. Temporal judgment is coming on the little ones who have believed in me. Sadly, some commentators misinterpret this text to say that some believers can lose their salvation. That isn't possible, if we believe the rest of the overwhelming evidence of the New Testament, which unconditionally affirms that believers are secure, eternally secure in Christ, we must assume then that this destruction spoken of here speaks of disciplining a disobedient believer. It could be physical death, as I've already alluded to, but more likely it is the loss of the abundant life and of eternal rewards in the time to come. This life is a testing ground. What you do here and now makes a difference on there and then. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, then you better be faithful here and now. It's up to you. It's a choice. You make the decision. You want to wander off into promiscuity. You want to wander off into alcohol or drugs or just living without Christ. That's your choice. That doesn't mean if you ever trusted in Christ at some point in time in your life that God writes you off. He's going to seek you out. He's going to do everything he possibly can to bring you back into the fold, even if it includes discipline, but he's never going to deny you. He cannot deny himself. He loves you and he died. Christ died for you. That's how much value he had for you. But certainly he will discipline you. (laughs) <laughs> Did it to Ananias Fire. Did all those believers at the, at the abusing the Lord's table. You know people the Lord has judged temporally for their disobedience. So how do we interpret this text? How do we apply it to our lives? We must not mix up the audiences to whom is being spoken. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he's not speaking to the church today. However, Listen now, however, there are timeless principles embedded within the text that are true in any age or time period. We should not be, first number one, we should not be consumed with our legacy or greatness. The first question I ever get asked when I go to a pastor's conference or get-together is, guess what? How big is your church? They're consumed with legacy or greatness. What consumes me is creating disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that does, though? I can tell you exactly what that does. I'm being totally honest with you. It drives people away. People don't want to be disciples. They just want a fire insurance plan against hell. Don't tell me about the deeper life. All I want to do is come here and get a sermonette for Christian that's on Sunday mornings. Tell me that I'm okay so I can go home and continue to live in sin. We should not be consumed with our legacy or greatness. We must become little before we can become big. The path to achieving greatness, the abundant life, is humility and service to Christ. We must also exercise great judgment in offending other believers. We must bear in mind that Jesus is first our Savior, but secondly... He is our judge. He will reward us based upon our faithfulness in this life and that life. Finally, we tend to value people on human scales of worthwhileness. Jesus values all people on equal terms. Remember the prodigal son and his brother? Remember Ananias and Sapphira? Remember the main... How'd that get in here? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, help us to never break the unity of the fellowship. Help us to treat other people, especially believers, with great dignity and respect. Help us, Father, to remember that you hate adultery, premarital sex, as much as you hate gossip and backbiting. Help us, Father, to remember that you will reward those who are faithful to you here and now, there and then. Help us, Father, to seek humility in our lives. Help us, Father, to find ways to serve others because you've instructed us to do so. We pray this in his name. Amen.